0: Hi everyone, my name is Melissa Lee and I'm a health coach who targets women with PCOS and women in general who wants to achieve stubborn weight loss. I do my best work when I work with PCOS urban women in their 30s who are embarrassed about their weight but want to feel comfortable in their bodies and are able to lose stubborn weight naturally. In this podcast, we talk about various topics including why stubborn weight loss is so hard to achieve. If this is you, definitely put this in the podcast list because one episode will be released every single week. Hi everyone, I have Erin Holt on the show today to talk about the physiological impacts that and the emotional eating and under eating have on our bodies. I first found Erin as the host of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I loved her energy and vibrancy and definitely wanted her on the show to share her functional medicine knowledge with us. Erin is a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist and founder of Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner training and mentorship helping nutrition pros level up with functional medicine mythologies. That sounds awesome. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited. So today's topic is about more like emotional eating, fear around eating and under eating. And I feel like this is such a big topic because even when I serve my clients, um, you know, they come to me for dietary advice or any lifestyle advice. But in the end, we always end up, um, you know, going into this kind of rabbit hole about, okay, they do have, you know, certain emotions centered around eating. So the first question I have for you is, when we have guilt or fear surrounding eating, what are the physiological impacts on our body?
1: There's a lot of impacts on the actual body, but I think we even need to back up a step and ask, well, why would we be experiencing guilt around food? Because why do we experience guilt at any time? It's when we feel like we're doing something wrong or bad. And that really shouldn't be coming into play with food. That really only happens if we've created food rules for ourselves, right? Otherwise, right. there would be no reason to feel like, oh, I'm doing something wrong with the way that mm-hmm. I'm eating. And unfortunately, this is kind of the, um, the, the culture that's been created by the dieting industry. It, 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 we keep we're like locked into this perpetual feeling of like we're doing the wrong thing which is really good for the dieting industry because if we're always thinking that we're doing the wrong thing we're always going to our invest our time and our money into feeling like we're doing better right like right
0: yeah and there's always labels about diets and like oh my god God,
1: and then if we even want to like take that a step further there's this shame component that comes up with a lot. And I think it was Brene Brown that said the difference between shame and guilt, shame is, or guilt is I did a bad thing. Shame is Mm -hmm. I am bad. And there's a lot of us running around feeling like we are inherently wrong or we are inherently bad. Mm -hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. this is a sentiment that diet culture doubles down on. It's like, yeah, you are bad. You want to know how to fix yourself. You got to buy into us. And so we just have to say that, you know, there's, there's the, the reason that we feel guilty or we feel shame around food. It's not an accident. It's by design. And it's it's really, it, there's a lot of puppet masters pulling strings. I just want That's to so say scary.
0: that. That's so scary. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's big business. Right? Wherever there's a chance to make money, there's going to be some tomfoolery going on. But to answer the the more direct question, what are the physiological impacts? Well, we have to start with 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 digestion and as you well know digestion begins in the brain right so it's a top down process and if where and, and if anything's misfiring at the top of that process it's not going to work appropriately further on down the tract so where we start the process of digestion, like I said, is in the brain and any type of stressor is going to throw that process off. And when we think of stressor, we might think of psychological stress, like many of us are experiencing right now on a really massive scale, but it can be things that we've overlooked as stress, like food fear. So if right. every single time we sit down to a plate of food, we're psychoanalyzing our, our decision and we're saying, is this enough carbs? Is this not enough carbs? Is this the right food? Should I be eating seeds? Should I be eating dairy or not? Is this enough calories, too many calories? When, we, when we're when we doing this, this analyzation of our, our, of our meal every time, that really puts us in a, a pretty stressful situation. And what stress does, it essentially shuts down digestion. So the stomach acid is not you know, the, the hydrochloric Ooh. acid that our stomach release is not going to be released effectively. If that doesn't happen, then we're more likely to come in contact with gut pathogens. We're less likely to have appropriate digestive breakdown. This puts us at more risk for food sensitivities, which is a huge thing. And everyone's like, well, why, why are food sensitivities so big all of a sudden? We don't have adequate stomach acid to break down our proteins. And so our immune system is hyper responsive to the food that we're eating. So and stress also directly impacts the lining of our small intestine. So we hear a lot about leaky gut stress, essentially like punches holes in the lining of our digestive tract. So we're more likely to have leaky gut processes. We're more likely to be opened up to autoimmunity. So it's really this like ripple down effect. So for we're, we're, we're coming to our plates in a stressful state, in a fear-based state, nothing's going to work appropriately. And then on top of that, we you know lots of women are focused on hormones and i think you talk a lot on your show about hormone imbalance right. and if where the thing that i always try to get across to people because we are so obsessed with hormone balance hormone imbalance is is rarely the underlying cause it's usually hormones, whether we're talking about you know, sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, or thyroid hormones, they're usually responding to mm-hmm. some type of factor. So it's not usually the, the, the problem itself. Hormones are usually responding to the problem. And so these, these problems can be- so many different things. But the one that I see time and time again in a decade's worth of clinical practice is stress and food stress is a huge one. So we do have this this kind of ripple down effect of feeling stressed out or feeling fear every time Mm -hmm. we eat has far reaching consequences throughout the entire body.
0: I love that you covered all of that. It was an excellent explanation, by the way. Um, It almost, I think what came up when you were explaining that is the whole like mind-body connection, like whatever we think or how we approach our meal, and that directly impacts like the physiological, um, you know, effects of like stomach acid and indigestion. Um, I think one of the stresses is one of my clients, she she had trouble socializing, right? So like, it's not only like when she's by herself, like even she has like fear around like socializing because you're like, what should I order? Like you are like scrutinizing the menu and that's like an additional source of stress.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, community is so huge just for our mm-hmm. overall well-being. And so right. if, if the way that we're eating disengages us from our community, that's completely ostracizing and wildly stressful.
0: Yeah, it's like a double whammy.
1: Double whammy. Yeah. And what, to your point with the mind body connection, I mean, our biology informs. Or excuse me, our beliefs inform our biology. So anything mm. that we're thinking, we're having a f- physical manifestation in our bodies, and it's so cool because this is stuff that I used to, I used, I studied 15 years ago, and back then it was like super woo woo, and like you didn't really <laughs> like if you wanted to have a stronghold and like be taken seriously as like mm-hmm. a scientific mind, you didn't really talk about this stuff. And now there's like this enmeshment, like where people are really accepting this this fact to be truth, and it is. But anything that we're thinking is going to have physiological consequences in our body. Any of our thoughts, any of our emotions, Mm -hmm. they manifest physically in in our body. And so we cannot separate the two.
0: So how do we approach women about emotional and guilt eating?
1: Well, I mean, I think first we have to talk about food rules and if there are food rules and where those rules came from, who gave you the Mm -hmm. rules? Like we, we, have a, a discussion about autonomy. Who's in charge of what you're putting in your mouth? If it's anybody else other than you, we have a problem. Um, and so w- without the food rules, without the good and the bad, without the morality associated with food, we don't have the guilt. Hard stop. Um, but I want to take a different approach with folks because we we have such a, a distaste in our mouth about the concept of emotional eating, like it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is acknowledge that this is what this is a learned behavior. We have learned this as a way to take care of ourselves. When we're going through a hard thing, when we're struggling, when we have issues, maybe we don't have the best coping strategies. We haven't learned them yet. So food becomes one of those things. And at the end of the day, if we're emotionally eating as a way to take care of ourselves, isn't that a beautiful thing? So rather than come at it from a, I'm so bad, there's something wrong with me, I can't stop this behavior, I shouldn't be doing this, this is a bad thing, we stop that train of thoughts and we say, actually, this is a pretty magical thing. I love myself enough that I want to make myself comfortable.
0: It's I just like learned
1: behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what? maybe what we might need to do is replace that behavior with something else. We might need to learn a new strategy. But in the meantime, at the end of the day, it's just a way to take care of yourself.
0: It's like almost acceptance. When you put it that way, it's more of like a self-acceptance rather than going at ourselves like we're hating
1: ourselves. Hating ourselves gets us exactly nowhere. This, I, mm-hmm. I am somebody who struggled with disordered eating for 13 years. And when I recovered from disordered eating, I ended up with an autoimmune illness. And I do not think that there is, uh, that was an accident. You know, I, I essentially hated myself right. for most of my life. In talking about beliefs and forming my b- biology, eventually my body kept, caught up to that, right? Yeah. I had self-flagellating thoughts. I had such negative thoughts about myself all of the time, eventually my body was like, ooh, I guess we gotta <laughs> I guess we're gonna do yeah. this. We're gonna go into self-attack mode, enter autoimmunity. So we have to whatever we need to do to to stop that self-flagellation, we have to do it.
0: I love that you painted like the overall and you know bigger picture. I feel like whenever we come into, you know, this sort of Um, psychological problem or issue or any kind of pattern that we're facing about ourselves we always want to look at the bigger picture so I'm so glad you talked about the whole like someone's you know having a being a puppet master um, you know we're running according to like big corporations so once someone is aware of that where do you go from there
1: aware of aware of like you know there are food
0: rules yeah we're aware like um, that there are advertisements, you know, placed. There are like diet culture, um, and that we don't have to be controlled by that. So where do you go from there?
1: So I think a pretty common reaction to all of this, once you start to unpack this and look at the bigger picture, like you were saying, um, a very common reaction is anger. Like. Mm-hmm what's up with this? Like why why is this why are we being controlled? Yeah. Why are we being like this mind control, body control? Wh- why? And I I always make space for anger and rage, especially female rage. I'm like, hell yes. Like <laughs> light it up. And I feel like, you know, I've always been kind of a feisty person and I've been told for much of my life that I have to control my anger. And it wasn't until I'm 36, it wasn't until my mid 30s that I'm like, no way anger is my superpower. Anger gets stuff done. If I'm mad about something, I'm going to affect change. I'm out on a mission to affect change. So making space for this righteous anger. If you're mad, cool, be mad, feel the, the anger. Don't, don't, don't judge the anger, feel the anger and then make some change. And I feel like anger can be such catalytic energy where it can really prompt women to, to, to say, I'm not going to be part of this system anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. That is easier said than done. I'm making it sound super simple. And it usually <laughs> takes years and years and years of practice because you think about it, the, the messages that are, we're inundated with the messages. Like we're all like baked into the same casserole and we're hearing the same thing over and over and over again. And so it becomes a daily practice to say, that does not apply to me. Those rules need not apply here. I have complete autonomy over my body, over my decisions, over my food. And um, if we get a little bit of like a rebel tendency into it, I think that can serve us really well.
0: I love it. It's the taking back control. Yeah. That's basically what it is. Totally. I love it. So, um, and also I was thinking about it, you know, women also have some trouble with anger, not to go off topic, but like, you know, we are tend to be like people pleasers. We tend to like, you know, oh, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. And, you know, some of us have trouble actually expressing anger as well.
1: This, I, that, I would talk about anger all day. I absolutely, because we are the people pleasers and it Mm -hmm. is expected that we put other people's comfort levels above our own 100% of the time. I mean, why do you think, Chronic illness and autoimmunity is so much more prevalent in women than it is in men. It's because we're we're constantly quieting our own needs for the needs of everybody else. And if we dare reject that system, we are cast aside. We're cast aside as the bitch, as egotistical, as you know, as as uptight. You know, like there's a there's a litany of names that we yeah. can when mm-hmm. we dare say you know what? No, I'm not standing for this anymore. So I think anger and then boundary setting are two things that need to come into, into everybody's day-to-day existence.
0: Have you read Dance of Anger? Have you read no, the book? No, oh, no. You remind me of that. Like you could be a poster child for...
1: <laughs> I'm going to write it down and I'm going to order it:
0: <laughs> The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. She's like a like a famous like she's a mentor to Brene Brown actually and she was talking about like how women can deal with anger I know this is totally off topic but um yeah like you remind me of that book
1: (laughs) it's off topic but it's not off topic I mean the more that I talk about boundaries in my own you know in my own practice and on my podcast and wherever the more people are like oh my god and I mean we can talk about hormones all day but like I just said Mm -hmm. what is driving the imbalance. The, the fact that we're, qu- we're quieting our voices, the fact that we're, we're not speaking up for our needs, the fact that we are, we're playing second fiddle to everybody else and everything else in our life. Do you think that's going to drive some imbalance in the body? You bet your ass it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. So we have to come back to the triggers and the root causes, mm-hmm. and, and this might be one of them for some people.
0: And this is how you approach your clients, right? Using functional medicine mythologies, because it's all about going back to the root cause, about looking at the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, exactly. It is, it's uncovering what. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of functional medicine is getting back to the root cause and figuring out, you know, the, the analogy that's always used is if you, if you step on a tack, you can take Tylenol all day, you know, to, to alleviate the pain, but the the problem isn't going to go away until you remove the tack. So functional medicine is all about looking for the tax and removing the tax. And I, I think, you know, I started my podcast, functional nutrition podcast three years ago. Mm -hmm. And three years ago, when I was, reaching out to people to ask for advice on the title, people were like, you probably shouldn't call it the Functional Nutrition Podcast because no one knows what functional nutrition is. Three short years later, and like it has completely blown up, which is so exciting and awesome. And there's a real need for it. But when things get, um, when things get popular, I also feel like they, there's more opportunity to take advantage of it. And so I do see some issues with the functional nutrition, functional medicine space. And one of them is something I call template medicine, which is like, we go to a seminar or we go to a training and we learn the protocol for whatever it is. So like, oh, leaky gut, there's a protocol for that. Right. You, know, mm. uh, you know, H. pylori, there's a protocol for that. Autoimmunity, there's a protocol for that. And as somebody who has been in the field for 10 years, working with actual clients in the trenches, you learn pretty quickly that the protocol doesn't exist because we're dealing with actual human beings. So theory yeah. is great, but what happens in actual practice, right? And so the, 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 the protocol kind of goes out the window, but a big part of the protocol, and I'm sure you have seen this, is this, these elimination style diets mm-hmm. where you remove all of the foods and they can be phenomenal, and super therapeutic if they're used in an appropriate way. But unfortunately, I see them being used in a not so appropriate way. And this has, um, this has a lot of ill effects on the body. So we can, we can talk about restrictive diets from the point of restricting food and restricting calories to, um, to change our aesthetics but we can also look at restriction as we're pulling food groups out as a way to control our health. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, there's kind of like a little bit of a branch off there. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes we're, we're dealing with two things, but if you're doing more of a restrictive elimination style diet as a way to maintain your health, there has to be an exit strategy. So yeah. where oftentimes I'll see practitioners put their patients or their clients on these long-term elimination style or, um, restrictive diets like, um, low FODMAPs or AIP or Mm. the ketogenic diet. And those are really restrictive. What's that? Those are really restrictive. AIP? Are you kidding me? There's like four foods you can eat. And so this can be great because what it does is it it lowers the trigger foods, right? And so Mm -hmm. when you lower the trigger foods or the antigenic foods, it gives your body the opportunity to heal. But if that is not the... If that's not the chief problem, for example, if your chief problem is the fact that you have a pathogenic overgrowth living in your colon, restricting foods isn't going to do anything to remove that that tack, so to speak. You actually have to address the issue. So I think this can get us into a lot of problems. And what I tend to see is when we we pull out all of the food. Number one, the gut microbiome takes a massive hit. So we know that the gut microbiome is huge for overall health, for metabolic health, for immune health, for brain health, for mood, for all of it, right? Mm -hmm. And when we restrict the food, when we restrict our food, we restrict those bacteria's uh, food source as well. And some of them, some of the bacteria that live in our guts are, are scrappy and they're like little piggies and they'll eat anything. And it's not really that big of a deal, but some of them are very particular. They're like foodies. They're like food snobs, right? They'll only eat certain things. So a bacteria, for example, like acromancia, which is really, really important for uh, the strength of our gut. It helps to prevent against leaky gut. It's really important for metabolic health, um, obesity, and um, blood sugar regulation. And acromancia primarily feeds on red polyphenols. So those would be Things you would find in pomegranate or cranberries or red quinoa, really anything red colored. Mm -hmm. And so if you're eating a diet that pulls out a lot of plant foods, then yikes, we're probably starving off a lot of those good critters in our gut. And when we starve off the good guys, um, we don't have that really delicate balance to keep the pathogenic or opportunistic or bad guys at bay and so it creates this ongoing problem so that's just one way that elimination style diets can be problematic but you know you also think about if you're um the vegan diet is is back in vogue um quite a bit yeah it is i know (laughs) i just got approached
0: to to be an ambassador for vegan dieting and i'm like
1: no, <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not, not going yeah, to be, say that I was a vegetarian for 20 years and a vegan for a good portion of that. So mm-hmm. I understand the appeal. I really do. Yeah. Um, but I'm seeing a lot, it's almost like virtue signaling right now. Like I'm a, on a plant-based diet. Like I'm doing good things. Like I am a good person because of the way I eat, which is again, mm-hmm. tying up morality with food. We have to stop doing that. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of low cholesterol, so I run a lot of labs in my practice. And when I see cholesterol, the very first thing I think of is what is her hormones doing? Because mm-hmm. cholesterol is, as we know, the building block for all of our hormones, right? It's the precursor to pregnenolone, which is the mother of all hormones. It goes on to produce all hormones. So if we have low cholesterol, we're, get, get, we're getting a pat on the back by our primary care physician, like, good job, you're doing a great thing. Yeah. And then meanwhile, we're like not building hormones. Yeah. Um, the low protein thing becomes an issue because protein, what do we get from protein? We get amino acids. What do we need to build neurotransmitters for good mood and brain health? We need amino acids. So if we're not getting ample protein or we're not able to access that protein and break it down into amino acids because we have low stomach acid or poor digestive capacity because of stress, then we're not able to produce neurotransmitters. So it's, just, it's not as simple as being like Oh, just eliminate this food and all of your mm. problems are going to go away. Because sometimes it's like, like stealing from Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> <What does> that <laughs> <say>? <laughs> It's like, not, that's not how it goes, but yeah. sometimes you're creating more, more problems downstream.
0: So we're talking about, you know, like restricting food groups and all that. What do you think about um, restricting calories? So like fasting
1: oh my God, how much time do you have? So again, (laughs) I will reiterate what I said earlier that there's a difference between theory and practice. And I think a lot of the proponents, and this is so, like, this is where people get gnarly about intermittent fasting. There is like, it is very black and white thinking, you know, and like people- they're They're like supporters for that. Sometimes I will
0: be like, no, intermittent fasting won't work for you. And she's like, you know, my client will be like, what do you mean? Like everyone's doing it. Like, you don't think I can do it? You know, like they kind of also put that on themselves.
1: Well, that's the problem is that we read something or we hear an expert, Mm -hmm. and I'm using air quotes. I know people can't see me, um, finger quotes. We have experts telling us what we should be doing. And there is a lot of phenomenal research about intermittent fasting really, really good stuff. However, there's a difference between theory and practice. There's a difference between evidence-based research and lived human experience. And I'm all for both, but I'm always gonna go with the person sitting in front of me. And I can tell you, I have seen a lot of labs. I've seen hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of labs. And every single time that I've had a menstruating female Mm -hmm. doing intermittent fasting, their hormones are trash and they do not feel well. I, one of my clients was a fasting coach. And Mm -hmm. so she she was building a business teaching other women how to fast and her hormones were, I call them flatlined hormones. It's just low, low cortisol, low estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone, low DHEA, just low across the board. And she felt like garbage. And yet her business, Really depended on her promoting fasting, and so we get into this. Like mm-hmm. I always say, like who are you listening to? Because you don't know the person, you know, like you don't know what's going on under their hood. So be really, really careful with who you're listening to and who you're taking nutrition advice from. But we hear all about this. I'll, I'll give you another example of uh, another client because I think this is super. This is this is like a. Uh, A classic story of how it goes. So I had a client whose husband's mom had passed away due to Alzheimer's at a young age. So he was very focused on brain health. And so he did a lot of his own research. Mm -hmm. And of course, he came across intermittent fasting and he started doing fasting and he was experiencing really good benefits. I mean, there is a difference between male and female bodies and how we we react to food. And most of the research on nutrition is based on male bodies, which is obviously problematic. So she was like, okay, well, he's getting such great results. I'm going to do it too. So she started intermittent fasting. She was doing fasted interval style workouts in the B be- in the beginning. And she's an athlete. Um, so she can get away with a lot, you know, her body is right. kind of an anomaly, right? She can push herself yeah. to the limit. So for about three months, she was feeling amazing. She was feeling great. She had like such clear energy. Her brain felt great. She was firing on all cylinders. She had lost some weight. She was like, "I am doing good." And then one day, she woke up and she calls it the big crash. She woke up and she could not function. She couldn't get through a day without taking a nap. She'd go to the grocery store and she like couldn't eat when she got home. She couldn't even put her groceries away. She'd put them on the kitchen counter and go lay down. She just stopped. She just said, "I am I, not myself anymore." And by the time she ended up in my lap, and we did a lot of labs, her hormones were a disaster. We had to pull her out of a really big hole, and it's taking—you know—it's taken almost a year to get her back to baseline pre-intermittent fasting. That's crazy. And she wasn't restricting calories either; mm-hmm. she was eating ample calories. She just was doing time-restricted eating. So, I I share that story because. This is where we find people. And this is where people tend to be the most vocal. They start doing a practice, they get really good results, and then they get on their soapbox or their, their soapbox and they start, start telling everybody about it. They start broadcasting it just because they're excited about it. They wanna share their success with everybody else. Mm-hmm. I always say like, wait six months to a year to see where you net out. And it took her three months to, to completely crash. It's not the, our female brains, and this is especially true for menstruating women. So women who still have a cycle, our brains are hyper attuned to any external stressors. Mm -hmm. So anything in our environment that says you're not safe, our brain is going to be like, whoa, like laser focused into that. And it's probably because our bodies carry the next generation. So it's kind of a big deal. We want to stay safe. (laughs) We want to stay safe. So our, like our species can continue to exist. Um, but what has historically been the biggest stressor to human beings, starvation. So mm-hmm. our female bodies are very, very attuned to any signals of starvation, whether that's under eating overall calories or a certain mic- uh, macronutrient like carbohydrate. When we experience stress or when we experience a threat to survival, the hypothalamus gets lit up. And the hypothalamus and the pituitary in the brain are like command control for our stress response, for our sex hormones, for our thyroid gland. So everything kind of just gets slowed down or ramped up. So it creates a lot of imbalance in the body. So personally, I have not seen, Mm -hmm. as much as I want to be a proponent of intermittent fasting because I've seen such phenomenal research and I'm like, I keep trying it for like years and my body's like, (laughs) Still no, it's still a no for you, dog. Don't do it. Um, I just have not seen good results from from menstruating females.
0: So can you? um, Okay, so someone I'm imagining someone listening to this would be like, oh, so does this mean that um, I can't fast if I'm like a menstruating woman? And also, how does the fasting actually, you know, affect that woman client of yours differently from a man?
1: I. It, i I don't super super know there's this there's a theory that has to do with a hormone called kiss pepsin, but like that's not am I saying mm-hmm. that right kiss pepsin yeah I think so, I think so. Um, but that's that's kind of just a theory mm-hmm. um, we don't really fully completely understand why it affects females, females different than males different. other than what I just kind of explained um, but the only way to to know for sure is to try I did a two part episode on my podcast about like, here's who should try, who could mm-hmm. try intermittent fasting and here's who should not. And the, for the who should not try it, if you have struggled with restrictive eating patterns in the past, if you have had an eating disorder currently or in the past, totally off the table for for you. If you, and of course there's always going to be the outliers to these. There's always going to be the exceptions to the rule. And those are the ones that are the squeakiest wheels on my Instagram when I'm like, Hey, here's some general information for the masses. And somebody comes in and like, I tried intermittent fasting and it worked right for me. I'm like, good. I'm super glad you found something that worked for you. For most people, this is not true. Um, If you have thyroid low thyroid hormone, it's usually not the best bet. If you have hormonal imbalance, if you've lost your period, if you're struggling with amenorrhea, if you're struggling with fertility issues, usually not the best. The exception to that is if you have PCOS, that is um, more of a metabolic insulin issue. If you have high levels of insulin, it can sometimes be helpful, but I'm really, really careful with how how we approach it. And what I always say is you want to make sure you're maintaining your caloric needs. You're not dipping below your caloric maintenance needs and um, really watch for signs of stress. So if you start to feel stress in your body, if you, your sleep gets m- messed up, Um, if your exercise endurance change, those are all be signs that it's not working appropriately for you. And you can just start with like a jet, like a nice gentle, like 12 hour thing. That's not Mm going to, that's not going to send you into a tailspin most of the time. It's like these big, long stretches of fasting that I see to be more problematic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, even, you know, with my, like personally with my husband, he, I mean, he can like fast for a good amount of time and it does well for him. And sometimes for me, I don't go very far either. Like I stick to like 12 or 14 and that, that I find
1: works the
0: best for me. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, men have a 24 hour hormone cycle. Mm -hmm. Women have a 28 day. Yeah, exactly. So So we're not not comparing apples to apples. Yeah.
0: The main takeaway I find from the whole portion is that, you know, the sample size is one. Like we're always looking at the individual, um, right? And so I, I think this is what I want the listeners to kind of take away.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I am not here for blanket statement nutrition, which is like mm-hmm. what is good for the goose is good for the gander. It is so individualized. I mean, that is the, that's the, and I know that can be frustrating for people to hear because it's, we, we, live for the easy answer. Just like, just tell me what to do. And I wish it was more, I wish it was as simple as that, but it just requires so much more context. The, 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 probably the the two biggest words I say most frequently in my practice is it depends. It depends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does. And like, I mean, I get it for also people, you know, who don't understand about nutrition and they don't understand their bodies really well. So like, I can get why they want to approach it from like, you know, tell me what to eat or like, what is the new lifestyle change? But that is definitely not going to help them.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, totally. It's, it's so, it's really confusing to be a consumer. And yeah, to, it is. It's very, very confusing. Cause we have mixed messages flying at us all of the time. And so it does take a little bit of tinkering, but I think like if we can focus on 80% of just like, you know, removing processed foods, focusing on a whole foods diet, reducing sugar, getting adequate sleep, reducing our stress, that can like move the needle at least 80% for most people. And then it's that like 20% that we can tinker around with that 20% that we start to move around macronutrients, or we think about fasting, or, you know, we, we talk about like, you know, should I be eating fruit or should I not be eating fruit? But really what we need to do is, is the 80%. And if you're mm-hmm. not doing that, the basics, if you're not doing the basics, you kind of haven't earned the right to do the, like the next level stuff. You got to focus on the basics, get that underway. And that might be good enough for you before you start fooling around with all the other like biohacks. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: Superfoods. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of move on to the next section. Um, this is also another big, big to- topic, um, eating carbs. So I want to know, um, you know, some of my clients, they have also like kind of go on a low carb diet and they You know, they get irregular periods or they don't ovulate. So I just want you, I want to pick your brains about how does eating carbs actually help us, you know, establish ovulation and impact fertility?
1: Well, I mean, I think we have to start by talking, carbohydrate intake exists on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those, carbs have been one of those things that we've just made black or white, like either you're mainlining pasta or you're on a ketogenic diet. Those are the two extremes. (laughs) like the standard American diet is, is notoriously very high in processed and refined carbohydrates and sugar. Um, and then on the other extreme, we, we have the ketogenic diet, but there's so much gray area. There's so much room to exist in between those two extremes. And so that's the very first place that I start with people is like, w- when you talk about carbohydrates, what are you talking about? Because not everybody has the same understanding of what a carbohydrate is. Some people think White bread. Some people think pineapple. Some people, you know, like that. We have mm. to establish what is your definition of carbohydrate, and and start there. I am all for removing the bulk of processed and refined carbohydrates. I do not think that's doing anyone any favor, Any favors. Refined sugars, get it all out of there. You know, it the the, the most basic way to think about it is the whites, right? Get yeah. that out of there. That's not doing anybody any favors even though it might taste good from a health perspective, not not super great. Um, And then from there, there's a lot of wiggle room to play in. I have a program called the Carb Compatibility Project, which is a four-week process that does exactly this. You figure out what your own carbohydrate threshold is. Where do you feel the best? Because it's so individualized. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a really hard thing to just dole out. I have found, to your point, menstruating females tend to do better on a moderate carbohydrate diet versus. That's what
0: I find hormones. too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I just see. You know, I talked about those flatlined hormones before. That that's what I tend to see as a general trend for folks who have been on a lower carbohydrate diet longer term. Mm-hmm. Um, we it can be hard to. Um, It can be very hard to have appropriate thyroid function. The conversion of T4 into T3 can get a little mucked up on low carb diets. So I tend to see lower T3, which is our active thyroid hormone. So the the big thing though, is you never want to drop both carbohydrates and calories at the same time. So I'm never an advocate for a low carb and a low calorie diet that is an absolute recipe for for disaster for females. But so many folks come to a low carb diet with an already restrictive eating background. Mm -hmm. So they're like 1200 calories, 1200 calories all day. And then they layer low carb on top of that. So that is the, the biggest problem that I see. I think that if, you know, I tend to do better with a lower carb diet personally and then I kind of pepper in carbohydrates when I'm feeling more stressed out they can kind of act as like a soothing balm on our like on our stressed out nerves yeah. I think mm-hmm. um, but it's so it's so individualized and the biggest thing that I try to get across is don't go low carb and low calorie that 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 is going to fry your hormones it's a very technical nice.
0: term <laughs> yeah. no so don't go low carb and low calorie at the same time mm-hmm biggest takeaway yes I always see that too like you know not eating too much doing like a lot of like long fasting windows and then low carb at the same time
1: well, we tend to Americanize everything. We're like, if some is good, more is better. <laughs> right. So we like maybe start on the clean eating path and we're like, okay, all right, clean eating. And then we restrict our calories and we're like, okay, all right, maybe some weight loss. And then we restrict our carbs. And then we start doing high intensity interval training. Mm-hmm. And then we do intermittent fasting and then we crash. And yeah. usually when I'm seeing people, it's like post crash. Right. They're like, I have no idea how I got here. And I'm like, I have some, I have some <laughs> idea. You got here. Um, but it's so common and it's just so like baked into our culture and the way that we approach food. and so' it's, it's very normalized behavior. This like high intensity restriction is like super normalized. But you know from, from a, another another perspective, we have to think about it as it's a stressor to the body and stressors will drive up cortisol, thyroid function goes down, ovulation goes down progesterone output goes down right so we have all of these downstream effects from from this like hyper focus on doing the most with our food
0: yeah i like that i'm just imagining your explanation like it really affects everything like your periods you know fertility um Yeah. Everything like sleep issues. I have people like depending, you know, dependent on coffee, caffeine all day just to get them through the day. Um, It is a lot of crushing.
1: Yeah. If you're not fueling yourself appropriately, you're going to be super dependent on stimulants to get through the day. Yeah. You know, because you're restricting your fuel source. So yeah, that's really, really common.
0: So how can women find the appropriate amount of food that is suited for their lifestyle? I, I think I know what you're going to say, but, you know, it it's depends. Like, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. But, I, yeah. You know,
1: to, like, throw out, like, an answer so I'm not just giving these, like, you know, super nebulous <laughs> ideas. Um, I think a really good starting place if somebody wants a number is around 2000 calories a day, which is a huge leap for a lot of, a lot of ladies, a huge leap. But I find, especially if you're, if you tend to be more active, uh, 2000 plus is a really good, good w- way to start. That's usually where I have people start. And if they're eating dramatically lower than that, then we'll kind of work our way up to that. But most people, most people's maintenance needs are not below two thousand. I mean, I have a six-year-old daughter, and her maintenance needs are like sixteen hundred calories, and she weighs like forty pounds. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. so we're 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 really really under eating, and we're setting ourselves up for failure. So if we can get to a six thousand, excuse me, a, a two thousand calorie place, and then mm-hmm. tinker around. From there, most people find that they feel a lot better. They have less brain fog. They have more energy. They have more like easier periods. Mm -hmm. Um, But it might be higher than that. You know, might be up towards a three thousand. But if you're dramatic, if you're eating dramatically lower than two thousand calories a day, and you know it, that's where I would start to tinker around.
0: And obviously, it also depends on the type of food they're eating. Obviously.
1: It depends on the type of food. It, it yeah. depends on their activity level, on their sleep. If we if we're not sleeping eight hours a day, then we're, we our our caloric demands, or excuse me, our, our we tend to harvest more calories from our food. We tend to eat more. Our hunger and our satiety gets all messed up. So yeah. even just like getting adequate sleep, like never mind the food. I won't start with some tweaking somebody's food until they're getting appropriate sleep. You know, yeah. Get
0: sleep, sleep is like a whole nother topic. <laughs>
1: Sleep is like the best weight loss drug. It's the best immune supplement. It's like the best- Food
0: improvement. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Start with sleep and then start dialing in the nutrition.
0: Nice. Um, Well, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for coming on today. There was so much information. Um, I loved it. I hope the listeners will love it too. So where can people find you to find out more about what you can offer to them?
1: You can check me out on Instagram. I spend a lot of time over there for better or for worse. I'm uh, at the.functional.nutritionist spelled with a K. And then my podcast is the same name, The Functional Nutrition Podcast. That's where I spend most of my time.
0: Nice. And I'll put that in the show notes. I think I'm also going to put the episodes where you're talking about intermittent fasting in there. Yeah. Yeah, So that's very relevant to people. Um, And yeah, I guess guess that's it for now. Thank you so much. Cool.
1: Thanks so much for having me.